and she really recounted and i i mean i can still hear her almost saying how one evening when her husband was uh, you know drunk and throwing bottles around and hitting her and he had a stick he literally had a stick in the house which was to beat her so one evening when he was doing that she raised her hand against him and this is after years of abuse and she uh, hit him back and said you you know really shouted at him and spoke up against him and he was scared and that day for her was just a turning point at which she realized that she has the strength and the power to do this hello and welcome to the nagrik podcast my name is ajuk john and on this podcast you can listen in as i learn from the people who have worked to bring about meaningful change we start this episode with the story of sudesha devi a young woman married and with children she stepped beyond her daily routine of hard physical labor and broke stifling social conventions to become a leader of the chipko movement now even if you know nothing else about chipko you will recognize the tactic of resistance that the movement gets its name from in the late 1960s the 70s and the 80s photographs of tribal and forest dwelling women of the garhwal himalayas encircling and hugging trees to prevent their planned felling went around the world influencing conservation movements everywhere sudesha devi was among the leaders of this movement we will learn about sudesha's life from sunandita mehrotra who runs artreach india to transform the lives of children young people and women from marginalized communities across india through art and creative education in 2013 as a young researcher in the garhwal himalayas she spent several days walking with the now 70 year old sudesha devi as she tended to her cattle and the farm in forest song the book where sunandita documented her research she wrote that the story that emerged was not one of public meetings leaders or organizations but of ordinary women like sudesha taking the extraordinary step of breaking social and community convention to come out of their homes and collectively stand up for what was theirs she was born and brought up in a, a pretty uh, forward thinking household herself when she was just her and her sister and her father she recollects often having uh, taken them to the farm and made them learn the kind of much more male roles of uh, driving the bulls and uh, hard work of cutting uh, you know for the fodder cutting branches and all she was actually taught that so she grew up in this kind of forward uh, household actually went to school when most women did no schooling and then uh, was married off into what was considered a very good match she was a, a army family and her um, husband who she would call a major so major was like he was in uh, chandigarh he was posted and she went to chandigarh and it was just uh, the problem with this entire kind of families upon families from the village joining the army or different ranks meant that there was along with it rampant alcoholism and uh, that is a problem that's gone on for years and years within the valleys in uttarakhand where a lot of getting into the army is considered a very kind of uh, prized job no so she was suddenly in this family where there was uh, her husband very abusive and uh, he would 
drink and uh, be extremely physically abusive and she for years it was just something that um, she uh, went you know did not oppose and there was nobody kind of to aid that opposition were she to oppose and she had uh, children and then they moved back to the hills uh, to Ch- Ch- chamba valley kemal uh, valley and in there in rampur which was the village that she was married into and still stays in even when i met her she uh, found that in the village this was something that was happening in every home and uh, the more and so desha i feel was just always because maybe of her early childhood was very vocal she wasn't one to just hide what was happening so the moment she realized uh, that there was there was was not just her case that there was more women facing this i think that definitely in her conversation i feel with me it definitely was a point that triggered her to feel that this is something that uh she has to take action about because it isn't just her it's the entire village's uh, kind of problem that's uh, growing and it leads to many things it led to you know loss of a lot of uh, money in the house loss of her own jewelry and uh, possessions that she really valued that her husband would go and sell uh, to to uh, get his alcohol so it meant that she was losing money she was losing uh, her children were in complete um, uh, like neglect because she is always dealing with this man so it isn't just about her and her what she's suffering it's about the entire life uh, that's happening around it so sudesha uh, decided at some point and also i think growing up she had ex- there were experiences of uh, like sarvodaya and uh, gandhian i kind of uh, meetings that would happen in the valley which she remembers having attended so uh, sarla ban and then later chandri prasad but of course these gandhian ashrams that uh, were set up around that area so sudesha had also like i think this experience of uh, leaders who talked about self sustenance about independence about what it means to take action in one's own hands those were uh, intellectual experiences and knowledge that she did have so um, later when this kind of mahila mandal and gathering of women started she is definitely was able to uh, organize women to step into their homes to inspire them to take action but it all started with her in her house and that i feel is extremely uh, critical to how we view women's movements which is that it it becomes something that's very personal it isn't just about what happens outside the house but it's about women who are able to transform first what's happening within their home structures and she really recounted and i, I mean i guess you hear almost saying how one evening when her husband was uh, you know drunk and throwing bottles around and hitting her and he had a stick he literally had a stick in the house which was to beat her so one evening when he was doing that she raised her hand against him and this is after years of abuse and she uh, hit him back and said you you know really shouted at him and spoke up against him and he was scared and that day for her was just a turning point at which she realized that she has the strength and the power to do this and then from there she went to the next home and the next home and slowly slowly was able to in the rampur village which is not a big village i would say it's about 
400 to 500 people in 100 homes she was able to go from home to home literally every day talking to women telling them what has happened in her house and how she's spoken up against him and what it means for women to collect and uh, the for some of these actions that kind of uh, laid the grounds for chipko was like opening bank accounts so she went and opened her account and then uh, gradually got women around her to open their bank accounts and literally take them one by one in a bus to a bank 20 kilometers away and get them to open their accounts when they didn't have money she would pay to open their accounts if one is talking about a women's right movement there is only this way of understanding that the there are many things that go together so um the movement of standing up for the forest is not separated from the everyday life that these women lead what is the forest the second part of this is like what does the forest mean for these women who stood up for it is it ecological values the way i am drawn to a forest or is it just the sense of every day spending hours and hours within uh, the forest and knowing all that it gives uh, the life that they lead and some of the questions that some of the reasons that they drew sudesha and women around her to uh, to save the forest are very practical what is is the life of a village home at least at that point was it possible without the forest no it just wasn't possible and who would bear the brunt of the hardship were the forest to go the women they would have to walk the extra number of kilometers to gather basic forest produce were the forests around the village depleted and uh, were there only forests higher up in the valley i mean anyway the forest take it's a lot of effort gathering uh for the gathering basic like if there's uh, even a lot of the medicinal plants that would gathered a lot of things that would come out of the forest taking uh, goats to graze in there so all of that is actually what led women to realize that this isn't i mean it's just not separated it isn't coming out of textbook values or uh, ideas that are learned it's just the idea that life is impossible without it and the hardships are only going to increase without the forest but beyond that i think there is a lot of philosophical uh, kind of conversation that was possible with sudesha because she also understands uh, beyond just the basic immediate uh, needs that the forest fulfills what the forest mean and what it means for them to have grown what does it mean for a forest to become the way it is and the impossibility of it reviving uh, even in her lifetime uh, were they to be cut so there are many levels of understanding and with this kind of deep insight of what it means to live with a forest and so it, but all of it like the, the point of it uh, to understand it, that it's a women's right movement is to understand how close it was to the everyday life of sudesha and women around her and how intrinsic it was to uh, go out therefore and save the forest you know it wasn't uh, something that was distant or something that was called upon by a leader who came in uh, from outside and said you know we have to do this because uh, this will this is what it will mean it was just like many levels of uh, meaning that that the forest already had which uh, at a point like this sudesha was able to organize women to do because also she had stepped out of the house and out of the constraints of patriarchy 
so that's how i think she was able to kind of uh, be uh, one of the main leaders of this movement but not the only one there are many such stories across the valley uh, of women who ordinary women doing their everyday endless chores of feeding the cattle uh, making all this uh, food also growing uh, vegetables uh, tending to them who were able to understand so deeply and sharply what not having forest might mean um and with that strength uh, going against the the households and then also it was actually like she also said they were very scared when they would go into the forest at night and they knew for instance like what would happen is that they would get a uh somebody locally would know that the today the mafia are coming at night in trucks to cut the trees so they would get the information somehow and then uh slowly by evening uh gather up and at night go into the forest and she said that they would sing to keep themselves not scared but they were scared even then she was like uh we're standing up against everyone and nobody even the men are not going to protect us really at this point there's neither the police nor the local administration nor our families basically just us uh so it was scary but like the togetherness uh the the reliance on each other and doing these things of like music was actually a major part of the movement when she even while talking to sudesha she would actually break into a lot of songs um so that is how they would keep their strength and i think just reminding uh, themselves continuously of what would be the loss for uh, every day and knowing that so deeply was what uh, motivated them to go against everything you were listening to sunandita mehrotra narrate her conversations with chipko leader sudesha devi this is the nagrik podcast Nagrik podcasts are available on nearly all podcasting platforms including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. They are a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project to reduce inequality in access to knowledge about the law, public institutions and civic participation. Right now on www.nagriklearning.com you can learn about the rights of communities and the governance of resources in India's forests from an online course prepared with help from Oxfam India and the Center for Policy Research. Professor Haripriya Rangan of the University of Melbourne's Australia India Institute has studied how the people of the Garhwal region of the Indian Himalayas perceive forests their own forest dependent livelihoods and the movements of resources between their villages and towns and cities I was doing my post my doctoral studies at UCLA and that was at a time when there was a lot of heightened awareness about environmental issues environmental movements there was deforestation in the amazon and my professors were doing work on it and i came across i started reading more about these issues and i kept coming across the story of the chipko movement and i got fascinated partly because it's it was sort of supposed to have been happening while i'd been a young per, young school going person in uh, in deradun um and a lot of my friends you know were from families that actually had 
small scale timber contracting businesses and so on and i just thought how could i have been a teenager and you know been with my friends and not really heard as much about it so i kind of got more and more curious and i wanted to really understand how that movement came about i was really fascinated by by the stories about chipko it was very inspiring you know narratives about uh, you know gandhian ideas and self sufficiency and non violence and women move you know becoming involved and standing up against you know authorities and forest officers so it was it was um really inspiring stuff so i um i wanted to study more about it and that's how i started getting myself organized to say right i'm going to do my phd research my doctoral thesis on this topic um but um to sort of put it in context and as i was preparing for my doctoral sort of proposal i given that i was doing my doctoral studies at a school of planning and development you know i was focusing on regional development i wanted to look at it from that perspective from that theoretical angle of you know what is it about economic and regional development because there were lots of theories and discussions about backward areas and how that could you know how they could be um incorporated into economic development how they could become prosperous and so on so i wanted to look at it from that angle and mind you um at that time i don't think there were any studies that i can recollect in fact i'd be pretty confident to say that there were absolutely no studies that actually looked at forestry as a regional economic activity so for me it was important saying if this is the main resource over there and it's not say um com- you know commodity agriculture you know people cultivating cotton or sugarcane or whatever for the markets well if forestry and timber is the main resource then how you know how do you understand this movement how do you understand development in that context so that's how i came about it and um you know preceding my studies were was you know ram guha's fantastic book um and quiet woods which was i think very very inspiring also and very insightful and but it didn't answer some of the questions that i was trying to get at which is about regional development and so i wanted to understand chipko in that context in that broader context in the year 2000 professor haripriya rangan's book of myths and movements rewriting chipko into indian history was published i asked her to help me understand how people who lacked formal education and experience of political activism were able to sustain such an influential movement you know when i think about you know in terms of organizing i think it's important for us to recognize that education does not necessarily make you um motivated and better trained to organize and and you know mobilize movements you know education has little to do with that at least formal education what these people had 
was a lived experience, right? Lived experience of a working that living that landscape, working in that landscape, knowing what it's like to eke a living out of that landscape, and also understanding how the forest department worked. So, you know, um, in that sense, they had far more knowledge than anyone from a city would, would actually have with a college degree. So I think that in terms of education, um, they were educated in, in what really mattered in their, through their everyday life. They were living it. And so I think the question then comes up, you know, there are any number of ways of organizing. And if you have been a student of peasant movements in different parts of the world, then you know that that, you know, peasants seem to be kind of ignorant and, you know, people from the cities will call them all sorts of things and, 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 and see them as, you know, uneducated, illiterate and so on and so forth, conservative. But when, you know, peasants are acutely aware of injustice and acutely aware of in exploitation and, and unfair relationships, Right, unequal, unfair relationships between landlords, uh, say the middlemen who who buy their produce and so on. So, the often you know the question is when does it get to a point when people start when the peasantry you know begins to organize and say no we're not going to put up with this anymore. How did they? And so there've been lots and lots of studies of people. Uh, of, of peasant movements, which have been actually uh, looking at how is it that they got mobilized and became violent or militant or, you know, um, um, challenged the state or challenged the existing power structures. Um, so not everyone can figure out, you know, how does a particular relationship which is exploitative, push people to then organize and protest as a collective, as opposed to individual acts of resistance. And um, I reckon, you know, some of the best um, accounts um, and most, most compelling readable accounts are by James Scott. Um, you know, he wrote about the moral economy of the peasant and weapons of the weak, you know. And what he was arguing was that that for a, you know people would put up with a lot. Um, peasants would put up with a lot until they suddenly see that you know there's a certain moral economy, a relationship that has completely broken down or is completely being you know undermined, and then that point. Um, is is the point when they are when they suddenly feel compelled to to protest now i would use that as a kind of e uh, simple but elegant little explanation to say that that i think that's probably what happened in the context of chipko that there was a certain uh extent to which um 
the community kept trying and tr kept putting up with the way the forestry department was working. But they reached a point where a simple request that they had put forward, uh, and I described this in the book, that, um, that, that they had gone to the forest department to ask for some timber at concessional rates for for, you know, for local timber, you know, like for some local um, wood-related economic activities, you know, some small-scale industry. And they were just summarily dismissed by the forest department authorities by saying, no, you know, that wasn't the system, it, you know, it was already contracted or whatever. There was no attempt to actually discuss or debate or, you know, consider those requests in a reasonable way. And I think at that point, they probably realized that there was no, um, there was no respect for the locals and no moral economy to defend. And that's what pushed them to protest. Now, what is truly um, inspiring, I'd say, is that, is that, yes, it could have been violent. But the fact is that there were the people who led some of those uh, discussions were were Gandhians, and and they came from a from a set of values and principles of nonviolence. So, I think that that impetus of being nonviolent kind of gave the basis for the movement to actually shape itself. So. Um, so in a sense, it also made women confident, right? Women who were literally managing their households, many of whom whose, you know, husbands or, you know, menfolk were elsewhere, you know, many of them, it, I think it gave them the confidence and, and sense that they could actually be out there in the front because it didn't involve, you know, it didn't involve, you know, picking up arms or anything. It was, they were there, they could stand there with their moral authority, like Satyagraha, like Gandhi. And I think that is what makes that, that movement, the way it emerged and the roles that different people played, I think that's what makes it quite wonderful and, um, and special. The Chipko movement has been romanticized as a movement for the conservation of forests. But the truth is somewhat more complex. For many in the movement, conserving forests and protecting trees was only important if it could support local livelihoods and provide for the people of the region. Sundarlal Bahuguna is the environmentalist and Gandhian who for many from the mainstream of Indian politics represented the leadership of the Chipko movement. He was very aware of the many strands present in the movement and he explained them to Professor George James of the University of North Texas, who in 2013 wrote the book Ecology is Permanent Economy, the Activism and Environmental Philosophy of Sundarlal Bahaguna. There's two stories that are told. One, uh, both of them concern the Simmons Company that was a sporting goods manufacturer who had come to the hills for the purpose of cutting trees particularly the ash trees, but the ash trees were necessary for, uh, for fodder and uh, for implements like yokes for oxen and so on. And so the people didn't want these trees cut. And uh, there's two stories. One is that Chandra Prasad bought 
said, let them, that is, hug the trees, let them know that they will not cut one tree without cutting one of us down. The other story is that there was a woman in the group who spoke and said, the leopard, when a leopard comes to the village, it is the mother who cradles her child in her arms to protect her, which is the true story. You know, to some extent, both stories have some, some truth. Because uh, when in the forest of Mandal, the government auctioned some estrays to a sports good company, Simon Company. Uh -huh. So, Tendipasad Bhatti had a block level organization in Gopeshwar. Uh -huh. And he came to us. Uh, what should we do because the trees are being taken away? So we had Mr. Ghansyan Sailani, a folk singer. Uh -huh. So he, myself, and Ghansyan Sailani, they travelled from Uttarkasi to Gopeshwar. Uh -huh. And on the way, Ghansyan Sailani was a singer, folk singer. Okay. And he would go with his harmonium. Uh -huh. So at Rudruya, he he stood up on the roof of the bus. He went up on the roof of the bus. Ah, and he started singing. Singing. Ah, and he said, Chipka pedon par abna katiyan dia, jangalun ki sampadhi abna lutiyan dia. Which means? You know, hug the tree. Uh -huh. Don't allow the tree to be cut. Uh -huh. And don't allow the wealth of the forest to be robbed. I see. So, in this way, eh? ah, uh, he said, oh, brothers and sisters, let us come together and save the forest from government's policy. Uh -huh. So in this way, the word was first pronounced by Ghansyam Sailani uh -huh. in one of his songs. Uh -huh. uh, and he composed that song bus. on the spot, yes, yes, on the roof yes, of that yes, bus. Yes, yes, yes. And that was the year 1973? 73, yes. I see. So then we went to Gopeshwar. Uh -huh. And uh, in Gopeshwar, uh, Chandi Prasadji organization, the Soli Gram Suraj Sangh, uh -huh. they wanted Ashwood uh -huh. or half-made cricket bats, I see. which were to be sent to Simon Company for finishing. I see. So their demand was that we should be given this I see. tree. I see. Whereas the woman of that, the village woman, she, she was very much uh, worried uh -huh. that what will happen to our cattle uh -huh. because as leaves were the scarcity season fodder uh -huh. to the cattle uh -huh. when there is no fodder anywhere. If the trees are cut, what will happen? And then there were yokes uh -huh. were made out of that. I see. So the people's concern was this. I see. And Bhattiji's uh, concerned was that their organization should get I see. for half finished Bats. I see. So in this way, the word came first from the folk singer Gansham Salani. Uh -huh. And then as the idea spread in the area, a lady said that uh, if they cut the tree, we will hug the tree. I see. You know, huh? after Gansham Salani's song. Uh -huh. So the women thought that we should hug the tree. So, so in this end, from there, the government suspended 
cutting of trees in that area and then they shifted it to other area and then we went to the other area the valley of mandakini uh-huh. from alkunda valley we went to mandakini valley okay. and there was kedar singh one worker social worker he said we will also hug the trees here i see so in this way the movement spread I but see. Uh, in the beginning this movement was against the contractors and exploitation of forest by outsiders but later on in newal valley uh, when people started the movement then they put sacred shred around the trees and they said that uh, we will hug the trees you won't allow them to cut the tree and there this slogan came what do the forest bear soil water and pure air soil water and pure air are the basis of our life okay. now and that here, that uh, slogan was actually in hindi in right? hindi yes kya hai jangal ke ukar mitti pani aur baya ukar mitti pani aur baya zinda rehne ke aadhar right um but these women would not have spoken hindi as their first language right yes they spoke hindi as their first language they spoke garhwali no, they the spoke garhwali but they could raise slogans in hindi they could raise slogans in hindi because they knew that hindi was the language that would be that the contractor would know uh-huh. and so so that slogan was generated by the women or by you and the women together or was it uh, sort of how did that slogan get begun how did that slogan get started yes the slogan began during these yatra during these travels i see well from the songs of ganesham sailani and from our I thinking see. it was I a see. common effort a common effort a joint effort yes, yes. there were kumar prasoon and dhum singh negi yes. the workers of himal valley yeah. so vijay jardari there were so many workers so it is a joint effort i see so from the very beginning mm-hmm. there was a kind of division between the participants from chamoli mm-hmm. that would be chandrapsad's group and um, and your group uh, centered in terry and himavali no the movement was one but movement. you know it uh, the vision was different i see the vision was different in what yes, way yes their vision was only to get forest products for local industry i see in the beginning i see but uh, our vision developed i see here so your vision was very much in concert with that vision to begin with you also wanted to generate forest industries at the beginning is that correct Yes in the beginning we we were against the felling of trees by the contractors uh-huh. and we made forest labor cooperative uh-huh. and when we saw that either the labor cooperative fells the tree or the contractor makes no difference then we reached at this at this conclusion that trees in the hills should not be felled i see yes so that the it idea it was a, a gradual development i see and was your own thinking on that uh, influenced by ecological writings by environmental writings from outside uh, no, or was I it don't largely think. from your analysis of what was needed in the hills yes it was not from the outside uh-huh. influence but uh, it was uh, what we thought that what we need in hills I see. And that was the question of permanent economy and temporary economy. I see. By felling of trees, you can get employment for some time. I see. But if trees are stunning, you get uh, permanent employment. 
I see. So the idea is to have permanent employment and yes. not temporary employment. And uh, the temporary employment, of course, is what simply exploits the trees, takes them away, and when they're gone, then the jobs are gone. Yes. Because yes. the resources are gone. Uh, resources gone and the soil is eroded. And the water sources are dried up. So in this way, they developed slowly. Okay, I want to ask now about the difference between perspectives uh, that is embodied by the movement that centered around Chandra Prasad Bhatt in Chamoli and the movement that uh, centered around the movement, uh, the, the movement that, that surrounded Terry and uh, Himalbali, Himalgati, uh, with uh, you and with um, uh, Negiji and uh, Prasun, uh, Kanwar Prasun and others. Could you develop that a little bit? You know, um, the movement in the beginning was an economic movement. Uh -huh. Because people thought that uh, the forest wealth of this area should be utilized for the benefit of the local people. Uh -huh. And uh, we were against the contractors and export of forest products from here. And it is why Chandi Prasadji uh, set up a, a small unit for making half-finished cricket bats. And that was the Dasholi Gramsvaraj yes, song, which he founded. Yes, yes. in Dasholi Gramsvaraj. And that was centered in Chamoli. That was in Chamoli. But uh, as we proceeded further and uh, it developed into an ecological movement. I see. In Ghati especially, and there were several other things, pulling out the blades from the pine tree, which were put there in order to extract resin from those trees. So in this way, it developed from an economic to an ecological movement. That was the voice of Sundarlal Bhaguna. You're listening to him on the Nagrik Podcast. Nagrik Podcasts are a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning visit www.nagriklearning.com that is n-a-g-r-i-k learning.com to learn about the governance of Indian forests and the rights of forest dwelling communities. Sundarlal Bhaguna was explaining to Professor George James the intertwining threads of ecological conservation and the protection of local livelihoods present in the Chipko movement. Now, the question of livelihoods in India's forested landscapes cannot be separated from the forest policies of the governments of colonial and independent India. The colonial government of India wanted to exploit India's forests to feed the Industrial Revolution and the explosive growth in international trade. They passed the Indian Forest Act, first in 1878, to empower state officials to acquire forest land and categorize them. Once some land is declared as a reserve forest or a protected forest, then it limits the rights of others, even those who have been traditionally living and living off these forests, 
to use that land. These limits were enforced through criminal law. The policy of state control over forests, which transformed the relationship between forests and the people who depended on them, remained almost intact until the revolutionary forest rights law of 2008. Throughout this period, forest-dependent people lived in a near-permanent state of conflict with the forest departments of India's state governments. While preparing the course on community rights and forest governments with Oxfam India and the Centre for Policy Research, now available for free on www.nagariklearning.com, I spoke to Dr. Sharachandra Lele, a distinguished fellow in environmental policy and governance at the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment. He helped me understand the Chipko movement as part of the tapestry of social movements that had opposed the state takeover of forests and continued to resist the state's control over them. So the uh, entire period starting from the British takeover of India's forests, we see a series of social movements in response to this kind of uh, state intervention in the relationship between people and their forests. You have, uh, as, Mad as Ramchandra Guha has documented, in Uttarakhand, a series of very violent protests in the late uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, where people even burned the forest that they were originally using and, and protecting because the Britishers had taken it over. Uh, consequently, after a, a series of these rebellions or a series of these uh, protests, the Britishers finally had to bend and in Kumau in particular, they passed the one panchayat, uh, 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 not exactly a law, but uh, a component of the existing Land uh, Revenue Act, where they created the space for communities to uh, apply for and take control of community forests that they were, uh, so that they could actually manage it themselves. But this is an exception. Uh, such exceptions occurred in different parts of the countries in different ways. In Jharkhand, for example, uh, the British was uh, quelled the Birsa Munda rebellion but realized that they would never be able to really control the forestry landscape and they created the Chota Nagpur Tenancy Act where they gave certain rights to communities uh, uh, to manage their forests pretty much on their own. In the Western Ghats, Although there weren't violent protests, there were still very well-organized protests because these were much more educated communities. They had more access to the legal system. And there were a lot of protests from, against this takeover and these were better off communities. So the, Brit uh, the Britishers gave concessions in the form of individual privileges to farmers who owned certain kinds of cultivated land to, uh, to also access uh, forest land to meet their needs because the farmers made a very strong argument that the, the productivity of agriculture and therefore of course the revenue that the Britishers got from agricultural land would depend upon their access to forest for produce that would be feeding into the agricultural productivity. So you see therefore a variety of things going on in the landscape where in pockets because of these protests, because of these uh, the opposition to by certain local communities, some concessions are given. But overall, you still see that the uh, forest is under state control. Now, uh, in the 1970s, you have the Chipko Andolan. So, Chipko Andolan is in a sense resurrecting that problem. It is saying that the our forests which were gone were not returned to us. Because remember that the one panchayat uh, solution only happened in the Kumau part of Uttarakhand. And in the Gadwal region of Uttarakhand, one panchayats were not set up. The uh, Chipko Andolan is in the central Gadwal portion of uh, Uttarakhand where Interestingly, the local community had set up a cooperative society to manufacture uh, wood-based products. And so they had applied for a contract to actually access the timber in, in their local forest. 
the contract however was given to a timber contractor from the plains and in in and when the contractor came to fell the uh, forest people objected saying how can he come from somewhere else and fell our forests for profit when we are asking for the access to forests for uh, running our own small scale industry and so in a sense that uh, the chipko andolan was not just about hugging forests because forests are uh, in worshiped or part of an aesthetic uh, consciousness or part of a religious consciousness the uh, forests were important for people for livelihood needs and people were asking for more control over their forests more access to forests as a resource for meeting their livelihood needs professor haripriya rangan focused her scholarly attention on the local economy of the garhwal region what she found was a region that was desperate to stem the migration of people leaving it in pursuit of a livelihood to represent it entirely as a kind of a narrative of conserving forests it may not actually be be accurate um if you look at the the processes that were happening at that time um which is why i had to kind of go i wanted to go sort of deeper into the history to understand what was going on in that region uh, and what was the context from which um you know these persistent irritating issues between the forest department and the locals kept festering and growing yeah so i think that um that i don't expect school textbooks to suddenly change but i think my research and the book that i wrote was really a way of getting people to say listen you know um you have all these stories but you need to look at it in the context of that region's history and that history of regional development or whatever however that region has changed economically because you know i was i think my some of the critics um of my book sort of said oh you know hari priya has has you know basically dismissed um all of the you know the sort of popular struggle the the whatever chipko symbolized in terms of the women struggles and the people struggles um by just making it all a matter of cold economics and but the reality was that people were concerned about you know their livelihoods they were concerned about the fact that people that there was so much migration they had they needed the migra- you know their family members to go out and earn a living and send money back home and and you know this was no stereotype about uh, of just oh you know the women who are the ones who protect nature but the fact was that many of the men folk were elsewhere working elsewhere in the plains in the cities earning money and sending it home and here with the women looking after the fields and at against great odds and for them um all the all the the hallmarks of development that they wanted was better schooling for their kids for you know better roads better access to markets for whatever they were growing you know if there were all these programs for you know encouraging them to grow you know different kinds of of citrus and for the market but you know 
road connections were poor and they just and for them the great frustration was that the one sector where they you know where there was an economic activity viable economic activity um, that was the forestry sector that they were constantly being kept out of it as locals you know? so the local men who were still around you know they found that you know they they didn't have many options of staying put in their region and finding ways of of earning a decent living so um so i mean uh to get back to the question that you asked i think that um that these are some of the realities that people who are interested will have to kind of dig up and find out but overall you know yes it was a you know when you look at it it was a non-violent movement um it was a movement that attempted to draw attention to the issues of forests and forestry but some of the important issues that it raised about the economics of how the forest forests were being controlled and managed that was not um necessarily highlighted in the in the narratives that you know became popular what can you tell us about the strategies they used to you know to to articulate and to bring about uh, change well i think one of the strategies which everyone you know is very very um you know um very very um aware of is how how the women would actually go where there was going to be you know uh, an area that had been allocated for timber timber contractors to cut down you know certain blocks and they would just go and and stand there and say you know that these trees were part of their lives and that you know they wouldn't allow anyone to come and cut them and and you know because of that kind of strategy a lot of people were initially you know startled because you know, they didn't really expect to be confronted by women in in quite this way so that was really quite powerful some of the slogans you know what does uh, what does um uh, nature give you know soil water and fresh air you know some of those slogans were um were really quite compelling and very powerful i think they were very empowering for the for the people there so they were articulating i think some of the bigger things that that some of the leaders were also you know talking about you know they were talking about not only what those trees were they were trees in terms of economic activity but they were also um part of a landscape which you know gave sustenance to the re, you know to people who were farming and living there and to the and you know and to the plains all the all the resources all the rivers and everything and we know that even now you know uh when we think about how um how much the the plains depend on the rivers flowing and you know clean water and and a good environment upstream um for you know life and 
and agriculture to prosper and cities to prosper downstream. So I think they articulated it well. And I think the I think it it really helped that um, that you know in this in the sense that you had a really remarkable um, older leader in the form of um, Sundarlal Bahuguna as well as Chandi Prasad Bhatt and and uh, Sundarlal Bahuguna was you know in that sense a living kind of um, symbol of Gandhianism you know Gandhian ideas and and um, he he understood. He had been a contractor himself. He understood the forestry industry, and yet he also could articulate the needs in a way that that you know made people elsewhere in India sit up and listen. Because most of the time, people in other parts of India don't really care about the mountains or the frontiers unless it is for their holidays or or you know for taking some pictures or if there is some kind of um you know military threat or you know um otherwise you know it's all the people who live there they're all very cute and 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 innocent and and lovely over there but basically they are servants in the cities for them you know them so um so i think that Somebody like um, Sundarlal Bahuguna could actually articulate um, the vision of of what people were trying to achieve at different registers, at different levels. He could speak in a language that would make the prime minister at that time wake up and listen and actually take action. It would make people in the city suddenly realize that this was something quite extraordinary. It would make Gandhians feel inspired that, yes, you know, these were people who were um, who were trying to promote the idea of self-sufficiency and small-scale industry and all of that sort of stuff. And it also made, you know, a sort of nascent and budding feminist movement in India uh, feel proud of the fact that these were women who actually were um, talking about um, not just their personal circumstances, but putting their their social and economic situation in the context of something bigger. Um, so um, I think those that I'd say was the kind of way in which I think the strategies, the organizational strategies, I can't describe Chipko as a sort of movement which is led and organized and you know it had all these flanks and subdivisions and so on but it was probably i'd say if i was to reinterpret chipko today was the kind of um social movement that pre that presaged many years ahead some of the kind of um popular social media driven movements today. It's actually an idea, it's actually um, a kind of more fluid, informal organization that actually um, made it quite powerful. They, these, were, these weren't guerrilla attacks on 
you know, random people of the government or the state, but these were people who knew that there was a, a forest block that had been allocated for cutting and that they could go there and protest, you know, um, and they could stand there and, and make a point, you know, and, and there were in many instances, you know, times when, when the women were forcibly moved. But in other cases, some of the people stepped away and said, we don't want to work here. You have to also recognize that, that in some cases, the laborers, the migrant labor that was brought uh, to cut down the trees, you know, they were often, you know, people who'd been contracted by some labor contractor who inevitably would bring people from poorer parts of the country or basically from Nepal from the bordering regions of Nepal. And some of those people, they, they would look at the situation and some of them would say, no, we won't cut the trees because these ladies are here and they're right, you know. So, um, you know, lots of factors come together in these sorts of situations. But you know, overall, I think it was successful only because of that kind of local knowledge, the way things were articulated, the bigger picture that different people tried to convey to an audience outside the region. Because, I mean, the region was still under the old UP, the old Uttar Pradesh, and, and it was never really treated as an important region other than, you know, yes, you go there for pilgrimage, but otherwise nothing serious other than you know the forestry around the world chipko demonstrated how environmental causes perceived at that time as an activity exclusively of the rich could be a matter of life and death for the poor in uttarakhand's agrarian economy women were the most directly affected by environmental degradation and deforestation as sudesha's story tells us Women's collectives that mobilized at very local levels around issues such as domestic violence and alcoholism formed the backbone of the mobilization around ecological issues. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of them for sure was this: the making of women's uh, group, uh, Mahila Mandal, right uh, towards the beginning. And so Desha was uh, the leader of that for Rampur. She would organize monthly uh, meetings of uh, the group of women. So there was, the, she said, so there was like this core group, which was women who uh, said that they are definitely part of uh, any actions that then need to be taken to help another woman in the village, whether it's personal, like uh, uh, abuse within the family or their social larger things that need to be organized. So there's this core group that then formed of uh, Sudesha leading. And uh, I think it was about 10 of her friends who I even like when I went up to meet her, she introduced me to others who were around and who had over the years been associated with her. And then there was many other women who would uh, come and be part of the meetings. And were definitely at different levels uh, inspired and uh, took took help from this group. But there was like the smaller kind of co-group of her Maila Mandal that was very, very active then for years, right? 
and they addressed all these like from wider ecological concerns to uh, to even education like where how do we set up the school what kind of how can education improve and she had a lot to say about education as well uh, to women's rights so and then like setting up bank accounts and things like that so um, that was one and then uh, definitely there were even these like as chipko grew from village to village there were much larger meetings that would happen and there was also these uh, activists the uh, sundarlal bahuguna and chandni prasad bhat who with whom there was definitely an alliance it's not like so she's you know she said that they we were all brothers in arms in these in the movement and speak very fondly of the larger uh, activists who did much you know larger scale meetings and then traveled across the world talking about uh, ecological awareness and their experience in garhwal but she also uh, talks about them with trepidation because she also says in the same breath of saying that they greet leaders and understand the movement she also says that they never stepped into our houses to understand what it meant for women to have organized it or our struggle so she was definitely associated with the bigger uh, meetings of political uh, uh, ecological activist meeting but i think uh, the most powerful organizational political uh, work was within the village within her village as with other women activists within their village doing very local and what one might call even small scale activism where it's 10 women 20 women women 10 of them opening bank accounts those 10 opening another 10 getting 100 women to open bank accounts and working every day on uh, domestic violence to uh, ecological concerns so uh, i think a lot of like from time to time she even traveled to say to up to chennai from her village and then to delhi for several meetings but i never felt like those were the high points of her uh, political career she never kind of mentioned those as being like she was even awarded at certain like kind of uh, ecological political uh, conferences for her work but those weren't those weren't the highlights of this struggle it wasn't those political larger collectives it was being very clear about what was the motivation to organize which was to save the forest surrounding the home that she has and if that's the aim local uh, organization of women continuous work meeting ever so often from every week two weeks uh, to keep that going and working across the board from domestic violence to ecological concerns the chipko movement for somebody like her meant uh, going against her family and the patriarchal setup which restricted her uh, kind of everyday life to demanding for the uh, sustenance of this indigenous amazing forest land around her village and going against uh, the family to be able to protest so so the two go hand in hand right you cannot for village women to go out spend the night out in the middle of forest singing songs and hugging trees meant that it was a a a, a, a 
a protest against the basic patriarchal values of the village as much as it is as it was of protecting the forests from uh, being completely felled by a nexus of uh, companies from across the plains from across uh, punjab and up to the forest department this tight nexus between the local administration forest department and the companies and lastly what was also really important to chipko and what it has become later also is the preservation of that really diverse uh, indigenous varieties of uh, plants which cannot which as sudesha often said to me cannot be made you cannot create those forests the chipko movement was widely considered to have achieved a victory when the indira gandhi government in 1980 issued a ban on the felling of trees in the himalayan regions and also passed the strict forest conservation act which concentrated the powers to determine how forests are used in the hands of the country's central government sharachandra lele believes that this mischaracterizes the motivations of the chipko movement and the demands of gadwal's forest dependent people uh, however the response of the state to the chipko andolan was to set up a tighter forest conservation uh, act to stop green felling above a certain altitude to then pass in the 1980s a forest conservation act as if the uh, chipko andolan was only about preserving forests not about transferring rights of use of forest to local communities to manage sustainably but also to use it for their livelihood purposes therefore in a sense the questions posed by the chipko andolan fundamentally were never answered uh, forest conservation was seen as a goal which means reduce the pace of uh, deforestation reduce the pace of transfer of forest land to agriculture for example but not that here people were asking for a right to the forest as a resource and to control that resource rather than allowing a state forest department to exploit it for revenue purposes many of the economic conditions that were the fuel for the movement remain unchanged only exacerbated perhaps by the transformation of the region's forest economy um i think that that it's a pretty complex story right now um and and we need to recognize that that um you know the the issues around forestry and forest communities in different parts of india is different um the in in the himalayas in the garhwal himalayas at least and i can say that you know some of the critical issues are really that you know the economic some of the economic issues continue to persist i mean um i don't know if if um you've seen that film moti bag uh it's a documentary um or you know any of these sorts of accounts coming out of these parts of uttarakhand you know um but motibag is about an old gentleman who is living there in pori garhwal in a small village and he's in his 80s and it the film's made by his nephew um and you know it's basically documenting the kind of life where more and more people 
despite you know the creation of Uttarakhand, more and more people have left their villages to go and work in cities. And the cities, I mean, the villages are abandoned. Jungle is taking over the forests. I mean, the the cultivated areas. A lot of people are old; they can't cultivate, and wildlife is coming back. You know, predatory animals are coming and you know taking the 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 stock. You know, like sheep or goats. And um, and really, you know, um, it's it's pretty it's very tough, right? And not much is being done to assist those families or to enable people to actually stay in that region and and come up with different activities. So, you know, those, some of those old protests, you know, which were asking for better schools, better, you know, access to some of the, the critical things you need for development, those things are still issues for people in that region. And simultaneously, I think what I find really interesting and compelling in, the, in that Motibag um, story is is that um, is that that region still relies heavily one way or the other on migrant labor coming in to help out the people who are still there just as much as the locals are going elsewhere to find work there are people from Nepal Nepali people who've always been looked down upon as you know dotis or low caste people and you know they but they are the ones who are actually coming and working some of these areas so um on the one hand you have this kind of um situation in in that part of the country in in uh, garhwal in those parts of garhwal but simultaneously you also have a forestry sector which was affected by those those felling bans way back and and in some senses you know the whole economy around forestry because a lot of them were pine plantations um and they were used for either railway sleepers or they were used for resin tapping right now in the railways nobody uses wood anymore they use concrete sleepers so that use is gone and resin tapping, I don't know how well it's going, but, you know, um, I haven't really looked at the statistics to see how the pine resin factories are operating and whether they're viable or not. But essentially, nobody will think of, will look at that landscape and say, hey, you know what, this is a landscape which is deindustrialized." Meaning there was an industry and it's no longer viable. People are no longer there. That economy has changed. They just look at it as trees, but the reality is that you're looking at a deindustrialized landscape and you're looking at a landscape where there is not enough support or investment in local um, agricultural development. So, you know, in some ways that place still represents you know you you can look at the forest but for me it's a region that still has that persistent problem of 
of policy that is not necessarily addressing the needs of the people in that place. In this de-industrialized landscape of the Garhwal Himalayas, 50 years after she first renegotiated her position in her own family and the community, Sudesha lives on and continues to practice the politics of self-reliance. Uh, by her primary, I think, uh, aim in life is really continuing her uh, self-sustenance of her own uh, mixed crop farming, uh, which was kind of one of the tenets of Chipko, was to be able to continue sustainable farming of uh, local uh, diversity of indigenous varieties of seeds. So those are practices that uh, she not just believes and preaches, but uh, practices actually every day and continues to do though, even in her like old, uh, kind of now in her late, late 80s. So yeah, that is uh, very much her. And she was extremely like when, even when I met her, she was already quite frail and uh, small built, but very strong. I mean, the one first grip of my hand, I could sense that this woman could really like she was a very very strong uh, uh, woman even in her frail, seemingly frail body. So Desha herself is very much in Rampur and is strongly continuing her uh, organic bara naja farming, which it means twelve mixed crops around the year, where she has her, so she has, it's not a huge farm, she has a small farm where she, from which enormous varieties of seeds come out every year. And she basically saves uh, more seeds than she's actually using the next year. But the seeds are saved in uh, these old glass bottles, which were uh, alcohol bottles of her husband's time that she's neatly preserved on shelves and are now filled with varieties of beautiful seeds. And she continues to do that and actually gives a lot of these seeds to people around, to uh, villagers across nearby villages who come and do this exchange of seeds. So she and other older of that generation, uh, she continues to do some of this like seed bartering. Um, and doing her Bara Naja 12 mixed crops where she grows a variety of uh, lentils, vegetables which are uh, native, so Kaddu at this time, uh, Tori, Loki, and then uh, Jingora native uh, millets. And uh, so she grows these mixed crops and really one of her beliefs is that the less you touch the uh, crops that are growing, especially in the initial phase of growing, the uh, best the produce comes out. The Chipko movement was propelled forward by women like Sudesha who stepped outside traditional gender roles. I'm deeply thankful to Sunandita Mehrotra who narrated to me her interactions with Sudesha Devi. What actually motivated women like her to organize and to take a larger role in the public decision-making around forests in the Gadwal region remains a subject of much interest. Thanks to Professor James George for sharing his interviews with Sundarlal Bhaguna, where he explains the economic and ecological motivations behind the movement. Starting in the 1980s, Bhaguna and his associates protested for almost two decades the construction of the Teri Dam on the Bhagirathi River. Bhaguna was awarded the Padma Vibhushan in 2009. Thanks to Professor Haripriya Rangan who spoke to us about development in the region 
and to professor sarachandra lele who contextualized chipko within the conflicts between the indian state and the people across india who depend on forests for survival thanks to everyone who listened in to learn about the chipko movement my name is ajujon and this was the nagrik podcast